Welcome to Money Self Made, a show where I interview remarkable people about how to master their money and their life. However, today the tables are turned and I'm going to be interviewed along with my husband about investing early in GameStop and the ensuing scandal with hedge funds. And if that weren't exciting enough, I'm going to be interviewed by my all-time favorite financial podcaster, Paula Pant of Afford Anything. So this was so fun and so exciting for me. I hope you also find it entertaining and informative, especially now that GameStop is making a comeback to the moon. Before we get started, please remember to smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening uh, over a podcast, remember to subscribe wherever you happen to listen. It's such an honor and a privilege. Thank you for tuning into our show every week. And without further ado, please Enjoy this interview with Money Self Made and Afford Anything. So tell me about your decision to invest in GameStop. First of all, just to like establish some background, you're mostly like index fund fire people, right? 100%. And we just have to say we're huge fans and really honored to be talking to you because you were my gateway drug, if you will, to this whole <laughs> personal finance thing that we're enjoying right now or the journey and adventure we've been on. So thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. Mike's a big fan too. I can't get him to talk about this stuff, but he came out because he was like, of course, we're afford anything for Paula. We'll do it. So absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, in terms of December, it was, I mean, I've got to give Mike pretty much full credit. I remember the look on his face when I found out how much he, how much GameStop he had bought because he didn't want to panic me by telling me, but we talked it through. And- <laughs> yeah. So I first started having GameStop show up on my radar, probably about October. They spiked up from, I think, seven or $8 up to $11 after hours because they had signed an agreement with Microsoft for some digital revenue sharing for like Xbox Live or Xbox uh, Game Pass for Xboxes and that kind of devices that are purchased from GameStop. So there's that revenue sharing. And I was like, oh, GameStop's awesome. I mean, I'm nostalgic from my childhood. I would hang out there and play the new consoles that would come out. And so it was a cool place that I particularly enjoyed. So it popped up on a radar at that point. I didn't buy any, but it really piqued my interest. So I started keeping an eye on them. A little bit later, I think about November-ish timeframe, started reading about it more and they 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 started popping more again and uh, started reading more and got in touch with Roaring Kitty. So yeah. he's a he's a YouTube uh, personality and he just tries to find deep value investments. I dove into his thesis for why GameStop was not going bankrupt. It's not a blockbuster 2.0. So there's a lot of really good research that was done, as well as the activist investor that came on. So in November, Ryan Cohen, who, who is uh, the, the co-founder of Chewy, mm-hmm. had written a pretty awesome letter to the board of directors and CEO of GameStop saying, you guys need an action plan. You need to say how you're going to start taking over this $200 billion a year industry because gaming is huge. It's huge. Their current leadership was just doing a really poor job of letting this huge growth just go by the wayside. I mean, this huge industry and GameStop was going downhill. So Ryan Cohen wrote this amazing letter saying, "You got here's what you should do. So I bought in that because I was like, Ryan Cohen's this activist investor. He believes in GameStop. I read all the Roaring Kitty due diligence. I did my own due diligence, found that it was 
very, very undervalued. And then on top of that, we all know the the short interest was astronomical. No other stock at that time was even nearing the amount of short interest that I think you've covered short interest before on previous mm-hmm. talks, but I don't, know, I don't know if we need to cover the, the ideas or theories behind short interest. Yeah, I mean, for the for the people who are listening who are unfamiliar with it, please feel free to elaborate on it because GameStop was, I think, the the most shorted stock, more so than any other company. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So there was 140 percent of the available shares uh, sold short. So that means someone has to borrow a share, and then when they borrow that share, they sell it on the open market, hoping that the stock is going to go down and purchase it later. So you might ask yourself, how do I have 140% short? Well, if I were to be someone were to sell me a short sold stock, the original owner still owns the stock, and then I own the stock. But what my brokerage can do is then go and lend out the shares that I own. So essentially, there's a synthetic long that can then be shorted again by another player. It can actually get above 100%. That just makes it that in order to close a short position, someone's going to have to buy it multiple times from the market. I didn't really have that as my focus of the play. I just had a focus of the fact that GameStop was completely undervalued. So we got into it. And the short squeeze was just kind of icing on the cake. Right. So that's what got me into there. And then what made us go, what made me go really deep and uh, not really tell Annalise what, <laughs> what, how much exactly we had was uh, Ryan Cohen had, um, he released a new 13D. And 13D is an SEC filing saying that he increased the amount of shares that he already had. So he had about 9.9% of the total company. And then after mm-hmm. this filing, he had 13 percent of the company. So he he went up to 9 million 1000 shares. And at that point I said, well, if he's going in this big, I'm going to go in as big as well. So on that day when he released uh, that 13D, I think the Monday afterwards, it was trading for about $15. So I just bought a whole bunch of it as, as much as I had in my brokerage account at that point. So this is all my after-tax brokerage, all my IRA and 401k as well separate. Those are still ETFs. So it was just a decision just based on an overwhelming idea of GameStop being really undervalued and this activist investor that has have a proven track record of e-commerce and technology getting in the game. Right. So there are a couple of things here. So first, with regard to Ryan Cohen, you know, that piece of the story, there's kind of two things that I'm hearing. One, there's the the more fundamental perspective on GameStop and its potential for future growth. You know, Ryan Cohen is certainly one of the most accomplished e-commerce entrepreneurs in recent history. The growth of Chewy.com was absolutely impressive. And when he wrote that letter to the board of directors, that letter resulted in not just Ryan Cohen, but also two other C-level executives from Chewy.com all joining the board of GameStop. So now you've got three people from Chewy who are all on the GameStop board of directors. And that's certainly very positive news for GameStop. And so it, I certainly understand how that contributes to a, a strong fundamental outlook. And then the other piece of it, as you touched on, is the naked short sales, where people who had located a share from a broker but had not necessarily you know, borrowed it and locked it up, you know, they'd simply located it, meaning you, you can short more than the shares outstanding. That I think is another very like fascinating piece of the story because 
if GameStop exposed some structural deficiencies in the market, I think it it certainly exposed the trouble with naked short sales. You mentioned that that was not a big piece of the decision-making factor for you. At what point did you realize, as, as history would have it, ended up becoming a big piece of the story? Like, at what point did you realize that this is this is getting into more than just fundamental territory? <laughs> that was uh, right when they did the board of directors shakeup. Uh, Ryan Cohen, they announced he was coming onto the board of directors. Uh, he was bringing his uh, previous Chewy COO and CFO and at that point, Wall Street had about a day of lag. But after that, I think we shot from like $15 up to, I don't know, it was like $60 or something. It just started going on a meteoric rise. And I said, okay, yeah, this is this is the squeeze. This is what's going on right now. So that's actually happening at the moment. Mm. It kind of took that to really solidify that, okay, this is happening now. What was with that website, The Squeeze Has Squoze? This was a thing. Mike kept talking about The Squeeze Has Not Squoze yet, but I think The Squeeze was prevented from being squoze. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there's there's some speculation around the, the squeeze. The real true squeeze uh, is what shut down the market and they stopped trading. So on the morning of the 28th at about 9.30, we saw a halt because the volatility on GameStop was through the roof. I think we we hit about 380 some dollars at that point when it halted after being up at like $500 in the pre-market. That that volatility halt up, we saw that some users on Robinhood actually had some shares being sold at a market at $2,000. So I think at that point, things stopped. The market was about to break. We didn't actually see the short squeeze because everyone was disallowed from buying, at least on, on a certain amount of brokerages as well as certain clearinghouses like Apex. So we saw E-Trade, Robinhood. Robinhood's getting the flack, but there was many other brokerages that stopped the ability to purchase GameStop on that day. Right. Um, but the pur- purchasing and buying, and uh, so only the sell button was there. And then the only person or the only people who couldn't buy was through certain retail clearinghouses. So broke like large scale prime brokers and hedge funds and things like that were never stopped from being able to buy and sell. Right, so, exactly. And that's what triggered so much of the outrage. Retail investors were barred from buying while institutional investors could still participate in the market. So it's certainly, if nothing else, it was certainly bad optics. As for Robinhood getting so much of the flack, I mean, I, my impression is that the reason Robinhood is get, is receiving the bulk of that flack is because trading halted on many other retail platforms such as E-Trade and Schwab simply because the or the stated reason was the platforms just got overwhelmed and so they shut down all trading it's essentially the platforms just went down temporarily because the system was overwhelmed but once trading was resumed those other brokerages allowed two-way trades you could uh, a retail investor could buy or sell Robinhood only allowed one-way trades you could only sell but could not buy, which necessarily exerted downward pressure on the stock. Correct. It wasn't just Robinhood. Apex Clearinghouse, there's a few others that actually use Apex for the clearinghouse. They stopped being able to purchase, but selling was okay. Uh, So we actually saw the ceasing of being able to buy on Webull as well. So that's another retail type brokerage. E-Trade uses uh, Apex. So they stopped uh, international brokers. They use a different clearinghouse from Apex, but they just decided to stop the buying as well. The the, the CEO of uh, international brokers 
actually said that everything was going to crumble. He was actually on CNBC and said that if uh, GameStop were to have continued to purchase, we would have had about 240 million shares have to be covered all at one time. So I think there was some, I think it has opened up a can of worms exposing some some of the underside or the shadiness of the underbelly of Wall Street and what they're doing. Because one stock making... (laughs) <laughs> a complete, a, a significant deleveraging. When I say deleveraging, if you take a look on the 28th, the entire market went red. So that's an indication that these massive funds were having to deleverage, meaning selling off of uh, profitable positions mm-hmm. and buying out GameStop. That's what GameStop was kind of the the green marker in a sea of red. Right, exactly, exactly. I've heard that described as, as the accordion, where major institutional investors have to sell out of long positions in order to cover the shorts. Exactly. So take me to your headspace on the 28th. You've purchased uh, GameStop at approximately $15 a share, and you've purchased quite a number of shares at that point. So on the 28th, you're looking at GameStop trading at ballpark 450, somewhere around there. What were you thinking at that time? Were you thinking buy? Were you thinking Hoddle, diamond hands. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I think it was uh, mostly diamond hands, but also uh, understanding that I need to take some of my initial investment off the table. So I saw it dip down to, I think after they ceased buying or ceased, yeah, ceased buying, it tanked down to like $118, I think was at the lowest. And then at the end of the day, it shot back up to about 350 So I decided that day, since it was so absolutely volatile, to get at least my initial investment off. I cashed out at the end of the day, I, I cashed out at 355 after hours, took my initial off the table so I wouldn't be sweating because it was really exciting to see the numbers go really high. And then it tanked really hard. And I was like, okay, this is this is honestly really stressful. So I just should at <laughs> least solidify the profit, get out all the money that I put in and uh, take out a whole bunch of profit as well. I, I still have the long thesis of after all this shakes out, I still see GameStop is very profitable. I would like, I'm just going to hold on to the majority of my share. That was my thinking, just solidify my initial investment, get some profit, and then hang on for the ride because it's going to be crazy. So you're still hanging on to uh, to a, num- a large number of GameStop shares then? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. What you think of its current valuations? It's it's up over 100 right now as of close on Friday. I think we're still a little premature to be at, at this cost right now. So it might be a little bit overvalued. But when you take a look at the amount of revenue GameStop is doing, GameStop does almost $7 billion a year in gross revenue. Yes, they are negative. If you take a look at EBITDA, they, they, are, they did lose quite a bit of money. They were impacted by COVID heavily, but they have one restructured and uh, they are closing down unprofitable stores that are competing with itself. So that should lower their balance sheet uh, as well as their e-commerce has grown year over year, 309%. Same store comps of the profitable stores were up almost 4%. I think there was 3.9%. The profitable stores, even through the pandemic, were going up and their e-commerce is growing leaps and bounds. I think right now the market is still valuing them as a uh, brick and mortar store and haven't really taken into consideration the e-commerce transition. But at this point, I think with uh, them valued at about at $100 a share that puts them right about $7 billion valuation. So they're they're about on par for their yearly revenue. So their EPS is like negative 35 right now. Fundamentally overvalued at this point, but I think once we see a couple 
quarters of profitable and we see the transition is moving through. Ryan Cohen puts a gameplay strategic uh, overview onto the table at the next earnings call. Then I think $100 is an absolute perfect value as of right now, if we see a good profitable quarter um, at their next earnings call. And then from there, it's going up. The bull thesis at this point, within the next couple of years, if the transition is successful, they move to mostly e-commerce, they continue downsizing their unprofitable store footprint. I could easily see it in the $180 to $200 range. That's that's my current thesis. Moon thesis is if Ryan Cohen can do what he did with Chewy and make this a $40 billion company, because the, the gaming space is actually a much larger space than the pet space. I think it's like $40 billion a year, where gaming is, I think, upwards of $200 billion a year and growing pretty consistently. So that, my moonshot's there. If we ever get there in the next few years, then that's about $650 a share. That, that's my bull thesis, if, if we can get, ever get there. <laughs> that, mean, that's Chewy, an extreme, it sounds like an extreme bull thesis. <laughs> bull thesis. Yeah. Well, well it, I mean, it, we see $40 billion. I mean, that's a the big company, but the amount of space there is to grow in gaming, the leadership that's in charge, and $40 billion companies happen all the time these days. I mean, there's a lot of money in the market. So right. it wouldn't be completely unheard of if we get a good transition and they become a growth company. That's the biggest thing. But right now, if we don't value them as a growth forward looking company and we just value them at like brick and mortar and we have a couple good profitable quarters looking forward, then $150 to $200 valuation is going to be spot on. Going back to when you made that decision, uh, when it was trading at $15 a share and you made the decision to, to go all in with the bulk of the money that's in taxable brokerage accounts, why all in on GameStop rather than any number of other companies that also uh, have good prospects for the year ahead. GameStop was the the downside was really really low, so the the risk of downside they're they're already in the dumps they're they're down at the bottom. The upside was much higher than the the downside in my opinion. And also being a gamer myself, being in the I work in the tech industry. I'm a nerd. It's kind of kind of my wheelhouse. So it was something that was easy for me that that I could relate with, that I understand and holds a place like a nostalgic place in my heart. Yeah. And also like I just like to drive the point home that we did have. First of all, we're newlyweds, so we kind of had this new financial take on on how to approach things as a team, but we also had about, I'd say 80 to 90% in index funds still and oh, yeah. cash and diversification. So this was very much a calculated decision where we didn't put anything we couldn't afford to lose. And once it was in there, we pretended like it was already gone. So that really helped sort of mitigate the risk and emotion around this moment for us. Yeah, mm. exactly. Have you, uh, so you mentioned your newly buds. Have you ever gone heavy on any other individual stocks before? Or is this one the first? That was the first time that a situation is presented where I said, wow, this, all the evidence pointing in the direction of uh, a turnaround is there. And this, uh, the risk of not doing it outweighs the risk of doing it. So th- this is the first time I went really, really heavy into a single stock, but mostly because of uh, the calculated, just all the due diligence behind it. Right. Yeah. 
Mike got into day trading about a year ago because we've discovered all of these new exciting hobbies thanks to COVID-19 and quarantine. But it was fun watching him kind of learn. And, you know, he went through some tough days too, right? In the learning experience there, you know, there were some expensive days, but he was really intelligent in the sense that if he had what we'll call bad luck or or if he made a bet that didn't pan out, he would then reflect on what he did wrong, how he would do it differently. So very much treat it like an analytical learning experience um, rather than like a game of chance, if that makes sense. Have you found in the course of getting into day trading over the last year, has it required new skills when it comes not just to stock analysis, but emotional mastery and behavioral mastery? Yes, absolutely. I would say that having kind of no emotions towards money is kind of how you have to do it. It it definitely has a certain amount of mastery because watching a loss is probably much worse than watching a gain. And that's that's psychologically proven. Many people are okay to see the numbers go up and if they win, they go, yay, I won, but they, they won't sell it and lock in profit. But if they see it go down, then they're really quick to sell it and lock in that loss. So yes, having an emotional mastery around the ebb and flow and the constant flux uh, that the market is. And if you lose, then looking at it very analytically, understanding what you did wrong, understanding what you did right, reanalyzing it, and moving forward is there was a lot of that because there were there were some days where I lost like 15,000, I think was one of my first worst losses when starting to get into a little bit more. I wouldn't say a day trading. It's not my like my constant focus. I do have a, a normal day job. I would say it was more like swing trades. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's just a very small amount of my portfolio that I would play with. But that day would really taught me like, okay. If you if you lose that much, then what what did you do wrong? What could have gone correctly? And also just taking a break, like don't revenge trade, don't try to make your money back. So there was a lot of that, like okay, let's let's take a pause, let's take a breather. I actually deleted all the applications off of my phone, so I deleted all the brokerage applications, all the stock research applications, and literally called it quits for like two weeks. Took a breather, thought about what happened. Uh, replayed things in my head and came back to it with a a fresh approach. And I think that was a really good learning lesson about just not willy-nilly throwing money at things that you don't quite understand. At that point, it was mostly options. So in short dated. So it it really made me like say, okay, this is not the right way to be doing it. So I need to uh, recalculate, refocus. So I haven't been doing options much. It's all just stock purchases at this point. Yes, I think the reason we're huge fans of Afford Anything is that there is such a mindset mastery element to it of being able to take risk and stay calm and not get caught up in like the fear greed cycle or FOMO as millennials would call it. So that's definitely what I learned from this experience. But even on the ups and downs, we still felt or I still felt the rainbow of emotion that you go through um, and had to revisit our strategy long-term plan. And even as it was going up and down, We had friends and family calling us completely crazy. And so what I've really learned is the value of contrarian investing, which is something I think we're both really excited about. So the idea of uh, deep value investments and the acquirers multiple. So this is from Benjamin Graham, who is Warren Buffett's mentor. 
And his theory is that companies typically revert to the mean if it's a good company without fraud on the books. So if you bet on companies that are doing successful, they might return to the mean, like the medium of what a company does. Whereas if you bet on a company having a bad day, it too will return to the mean. And that's what has really excited me about this entire situation is, is the idea of deep value investing and, and how to put together that kind of portfolio. Yeah, we've definitely increased our knowledge around deep value and understanding how to spot these kinds of deals. So we've been trying to put together a portfolio and not necessarily buy anything immediately, but learning how to dive into the company's 10Ks, 10Qs, and understanding balance sheets and trying to understand how we could identify these really, really deep value plays where as long as they don't go completely bankrupt, then perhaps they will return to the mean. And we're seeing value plays like around the travel industry currently, like all the airlines and uh, cruises and travel type stuff. Because as the vaccine rolls out, then these are going to return to the mean. So it's really opened our eyes to not just uh, index funds, but how like Warren Buffett and his predecessors would trade the market and how they became multiple billionaires, which it totally intrigues me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. After we kind of got into the fire thing, we've just needed to go next level. We were starting to get like, oh, what else can we do? You know, yeah. we have so many index funds, so we just needed a new, a new fix, I guess. I understand that for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I share the same strategy where everything in a retirement account, in everything in my 401k, my IRA, my HSA, all of that is an index funds. But then that additional money that's in taxable brokerage accounts, it's nice to be able to to play with that a little bit, to, to take some bigger risks there because that's money that's outside of core retirement. It's a small overall, a small portion of my overall portfolio. You know, it kind of creates that interest that sort of keeps you in the market and allows Absolutely. you to, to make those higher volatility plays. Definitely the experience has changed my perspective on risk in a lot of ways because I've been pretty risk adverse because I saw my parents make financial mistakes, but then I've realized a lot of times if you can take that risk, sometimes being in the game is, is a good thing as long as it's you've calculated the decision. How was it with GameStop specifically? You know, oftentimes when it comes to investing in any given stock, even if there is a lot of volatility, even if there is a lot of emotion, it doesn't become so comically absurd that it reaches the front page of every newspaper, you know, and, and non-finance people are, are hearing about it. Like, uh, what happened with GameStop was particularly once it became kind of tinged with like sort of an Occupy Wall Street movement around it, you know, once it once it hit the, the mainstream headlines, how were you able to like, how did you process all of that? You know, you when you invest in any other given stock, if you invest in Marathon Oil, even if there is a, a multiplying effect on the the price of the stock, you know, Marathon was trading for four dollars a share at the beginning of the pandemic, it's up. Um, it was up over 11 just last week. So certainly, you know, you see that kind of growth happening in all sorts of stocks that don't end up ha developing a circus around them. How did you process everything that was happening with GameStop, given that it was all so unexpected, everything culturally that was happening? Yeah, that was a really interesting one because it did turn into, it started a deep value play. And then it turned into this, oh, we're going to squeeze everything. And then suddenly it turned into, 
this battle, David Goliath. I don't even know how it got there. It was, <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> I mean, for me, it was like, wait, wh- how did this go so off of the rails? Literally, this was just a, a technical play. I think when they, we realized how just exactly how leveraged some of these massive hedge funds were and how much fighting there was to keep the price of GameStop suppressed mm-hmm. and hearing one of these hedge funds lose almost 53% of their net asset value. I think at that point, people started coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh man, we're beating them at their own game. I remember 2008 when my parents lost their house and it started getting really personal. I saw a lot of stories online that were just incredible, but for me, it was never like that. I wasn't really affected by the 2008 crisis. Oh, that's not true. As, as much. Mike as, bought a house. Oh. Um, yeah, he bought a house like right before everything tanked, oh, but yeah. he was smart and he held on to it. And Mike has a very like interesting and humble background. Like he couldn't go to college because parents didn't have credit for like the application. And I think you bought a house right in 2007, but you hung on to it. Oh so, yeah. I hung. yeah. So I did purchase real estate right at the height of the bubble, but that's kind of a, a side story. The whole idea of it becoming a David and Goliath, I think I think the media really kind of steered that narrative a lot, but there, there were definitely stories online. So for me, it was never that because even though I had purchased real estate at the height of the housing bubble, it didn't affect me because I held on to it. I didn't sell it. I still had a job through the entire recession. That really wasn't a point for me, but it, it was very interesting to see that narrative take place. I loved it because I feel like it was kind of the financial Super Bowl and I had front row tickets, which was very really exciting. But at the same time, I'd also, I worked in social media for a time and I saw the power of community and how incredible it could be when these people kind of band together. So just watching that as a social phenomenon, I found extremely fascinating. And it's also interesting to see how Wall Street Bets has been portrayed. Like, yes, there is kind of a bro culture. I take issue with that to a degree, but if you really get into it. I mean, they're hilarious and the memes are very, (laughs) it's me, but it's also kind of like they're all getting a fundamental finance education. Like these emoji symbols of that community sometimes can be profound, like the concept of diamond hands. (laughs) I think uh, through there's, there's lots of awesome memes. I mean, that's, they're very, very creative people. The memes are Mm -hmm. great, but some of the due diligence you get out of that, that sub is absolutely incredible. Um, So much time and effort and thought is put into some of these posts detailing what the company is and why they're going to go to the moon and why they deserve so many rocket emojis. Mm -hmm. So it's it's incredible to see the financial literacy that's actually coming up. And I think it's hilarious because there's so many people who play dumb on that subreddit. And there are a lot of maybe lower educated people who do frequent it and do only look at the rocket emojis, but there's a good handful of people that actually read through the due diligence. And to me, it's, it's awesome. It's really actually increased my financial literacy because in between the memes and the laughing and, and all the, what they call loss porn, it's uh, you actually find these really good nuggets of information uh, that you can go and take and then you can read into it and figure out why they thought that way. 
So I think it's great because it, it is expanding financial literacy in a lot of different ways. Some might gamble off of it, but some are actually learning. I see people ask questions on there and get schooled in how options work and how the market works and many things that other uh, subreddits like investing or stocks may not actually dive into because the fundamental analysis that's done in Wall Street Bets is almost a step above from a lot of things because most other subreddits are just like, buy the ETF and forget about it which is absolutely perfect advice. But yeah, Wall Street Bets is definitely an interesting place. I enjoy it. It was cathartic <laughs> to have a community on the down days. So, you know, it was like you were all in it together. I wasn't really an active participant, but I would go on and look at the lost porn and the like really random memes they put together. And it was it made me feel better if we were like down a million or up a million, depending on the day. So, yeah, it's entertaining. But that being said, I mean, I do have concern. One, I think it's great that, you know, Wall Street Bets is bringing financial literacy and making personal finance fun for so many people. Uh, I hope that, you know, people like are able to emotionally distance themselves um, from this, these learning experiences. But also I am concerned as somebody, we both work in tech, we're familiar with user experience design and the addiction element of Facebook and Instagram and how Robinhood has put at play some of those behavioral uh, mechanisms. I think you had Charles Duhigg, um, you know, power of habit, if, if you're familiar. And, and that does worry me, the idea that people could get addicted to the Robinhood app and that like dopamine rush of buy, sell, buy, sell. So that's sort of like a Pandora's box that can be used for good or evil, which is why financial literacy and education, I think, is so important, right? now. Right, exactly. And and the behavioral piece of kind of putting safeguards in place that, that limit your exposure. And as you said in the beginning of this interview, guarantee that you risk only what you're willing to lose and write Definitely. it off in your head at the, at the moment of investment, write it off in your head as if you've already lost it. Yeah, right. that's the mentality you have to go into some of these things. It, it does sadden me that there, there are people on some of these subreddits that have taken out loans and thrown their entire life savings or Something that's just completely outrageous that someone would do that. So that I don't condone. Let's stick with the memes and not destroying your life. So mm. I, I would definitely recommend avoiding that one. Right. And right. Robin had had quite a year leading up to even this moment. There were like infinite loops and losses and glitches that I was watching before the whole GameStop thing happened. But I, what I find most concerning is there was a suicide over the summer because of the Robin Hood lack of support, I think. And somebody thought they had lost a lot of money, but actually hadn't. And that really just broke my heart. I don't want to hear those stories um, over something like money that's supposed to be, you know, it's just money, you know? Right. Yeah. That I, I read about that. Robin Hood had essentially the screen on Robin Hood demonstrated that he had lost se around $700,000, which was not his. That was significantly greater than his initial investment. He was in, in his early 20s, I believe. Really what it was, was sort of a, a misunderstanding in the way in which they were communicating. And by Monday, you know, the screen had corrected itself, but by then he was dead. Yes. Exactly. Right. And he would have actually had a gain from that whole experience, which is why, you know, you have to take those moments of learning experiences and not get sucked into them. Mm -hmm. And I just really want people to know that if they decide that they want to dabble in this type of thing. Yeah. And don't use Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan of Schwab and there's just a lot more it's just harder to to just jump at your first initial instinct in, in some of the other brokerages, I think. 
which is good. Yep. Did you invest in any of the other stocks that were promoted by Wall Street Bets, such as Nokia, BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond, Express, the other stocks that were heavily shorted and touted by Wall Street Bets over the course of the past couple of months? No, I didn't get into any of those. Before I jump into things at this point, I will have to do a lot of due diligence in the amount of craziness around all of the meme stocks at that point. I didn't want to take the time between my my job and focusing on what was going on with GameStop. I didn't even bother to get anything else or take a look into anything because I mean my my take on that for like say AMC. AMC was a big one that people were really getting into around the same time that GameStop was blowing up. And AMC for me didn't have the same fundamental value that GameStop really stuck out for because GameStop has multiple revenue streams. You got a huge e-commerce ecosystem as well as their still brick and mortar where AMC is literally just movies and they make money off of like popcorn and food that's inside of the place. So not having multiple revenue streams and still being in the pandemic and not knowing exactly when all the shots are going to be rolled out and have all that completed just left too much of a gray area for me to want to jump into. And then BlackBerry, I know what BlackBerry is. They were a phone manufacturer, but apparently there's going to be a pivot into security type tools uh, for EVs, which could be interesting, but I, I haven't taken enough time to really understand whether or not there's enough fundamental value there to really want to jump in. Lots of memeing around there, but for me specifically, it does take a lot of research and I, I do want a fundamental basis of success in the future. Well, it sounds as though you're uh, you're doing it right. You're doing the proper due diligence rather than simply following the memes. Yes, it takes a lot of that. So meme stocks are great. Like there's an op- opportunity to make a lot of money in meme stocks because as with anything, it's like a wave, it's momentum. If you can jump on the wave and catch the wave and move through it, that can be great. But for me... It's, it's more than just having the momentum. I also need that fundamental. Even when the wave is done, will the wave continue to be like a tide comes in over a gradual period of time so I can actually hold this for long term and be able to have a nice significant growth in the long term and then say if this is a taxable account, then my capital gains are going to be much lower because it's not a short term investment. I don't have to get in, get out, and then pay upwards of 40% of tax between state and federal. That's that's my take on it. Yeah. The capital gains tax was a whole question mark over our heads that week that made things particularly stressful, especially because our original strategy was to hang in the game and, you know, trying to weigh out the pros and cons and then do mathematical projections. Like if we sell now, et cetera, in retrospect, if I could go back and advise us, I would say maybe sell all of it, but I don't <laughs> think, I don't think we have any regrets. I'd say it's 2020 though. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it was really, I think we feel okay. I'm really, really glad though. Cause I remember Mike came out of his office and he looked just completely stressed after a day of, this was before <laughs> they even removed the buy button. So by the time everyone started covering it, we'd already been on our own journey, but I was like, well, how about we just sell what we need to feel, you know, safe and comfortable financially. Uh, and then just let the last, the rest ride. And um, after that, we felt, we felt good about it. It was much easier to stay calm, you know? Definitely. Yeah. So that's a big part of my strategy as well. When I'm not sure about what to do about a stock, I will remove the cost basis so that, you know, what's left over, you know, what's what remains invested is is quote unquote house money. 
and then oftentimes yes. I'll sell a, uh, I'll set a stop loss order or a series of stop loss orders so that I can capture the upside while still protecting against downside. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yes. the, the trailing stop is always good for that one. So it'll move uh, that stop will move as your profit moves up. Yeah, and that is what is such a kicker is I think Mike had actually put his stop at 500 and we got $18 away from your prediction. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, if they hadn't stopped the buy button, we would yeah. have easily hit it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, technically the fact that they did that probably cost us about $2 million ultimately, something along those lines. That's crazy. So, I mean, we we have no regrets because these things, again, it's gambling in my mind. So like the world doesn't owe us anything, but it is interesting that that decision on Robin Hood's part was such an extreme cost to our, like our projections. Exactly. Exactly. And that will be interesting, you know, legally as, as the, um, you know, there's a class action lawsuit against Robin Hood that, you know, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how that plays out since there are so many investors who will be able to make a case for actual damages. And yeah. there have been instances yeah, in the past where, where other apps, where there's the system broke, like Uber surge pricing, the system didn't have safeguards and surge pricing in the past went up to, you know, insane amounts of money for a a 30 minute ride. But it was much harder in those cases for users to demonstrate actual financial losses because a judge could say, Mm -hmm. well, you didn't have to take that ride, you could have just walked, etc. But with a case like Robinhood, there are genuine financial losses. Uh, I think there's a, a much clearer picture that people can paint. And the argument that people, you know, that, that protected Uber of, well, you didn't have to participate cannot be applied in the Robin Hood context when money is already tied up. I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out in the courts. Definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to follow that case and see where it's all going. I'm also interested apparently they're going to have more congressional hearings around uh, GameStop. So, I'm I'm excited to see where they'll go with that whether they're going to put rules in place that'll harm retail investors more like they've done in the past or actually stamp down on short sales or naked short sales or anything like that. So that'll be interesting to see how everything unfolds. Yeah. And I can't wait to get our like $9 and 92 cent check from the class action lawsuit. <laughs> well, we don't use Robin Hood, so we weren't I do. I do. Uh, no, you're right. We had it in Schwab, didn't we? Yeah, for sure. But Paula, are you watching C-SPAN? Like what are your thoughts of the trials and, and all of that kind of stuff? What are your thoughts in general? I'd love to hear your take on this whole episode. I loved Keith Gill's testimony. Um, I thought that he did the mm-hmm. best job of, of anyone. Uh, Ro- and yes. for people who are listening who don't know that who that is, that's Roaring Kitty, who we, who we referenced at the beginning of this uh, interview. I thought he had the clearest testimony of anyone. Vlad, the Robin Hood CEO, I understand what he, why he said, you know, on, on January 28th, he went on TV and said that they were not having liquidity issues, which, you know, and, and then later he kind of backed it seemed as though he backtracked when he explained that Robinhood had ran out of, had run out of cash and you know his explanation for that is that that Robinhood the definition of the word liquidity and the way that he interpreted that word blah 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 you know that was his, his that was his explanation and i believe that i don't think that Robinhood was up to anything necessarily nefarious but i do think that the the entire thing has exposed cracks in the system you know deficiencies in the way that the structure is set up naked short sales being one of those and, and i think that as these hearings continue to unfold and as the cases wind through the court system those underlying cracks will be kind of, you know, more brought to light. And and hopefully that would lead to a remedy. But but at a minimum, those cracks, I think, will be better understood by many people. Like, 
one of the benefits of what has happened is that payment for order flow is now kind of co- part of the collective consciousness. You know, that's now a concept that many people are exposed to that they, they didn't know about six months ago. Yeah, and so, absolutely. you know, I think financial literacy is enhanced through all of this. And that I think is a big net positive for society. I, I would agree. So one of the inter- coming back to uh, Vlad and his testimony, the interesting thing is he said uh, we, we did not have a liquidity issue or he wouldn't admit to having a liquidity issue. But at the same time, he said that the DTCC, which is the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, uh, they handle a lot of the settlements. So that when people trade, the clearinghouse essentially takes the cash and they take the stocks and they swap them between the two parties. The DTCC he said had increased their margin requirements by tenfold. So typically they have a $300 million margin requirement. The DTCC, according to Vlad, he said they gave him a $3 billion margin call. So that's why it wasn't that he was out of cash. He couldn't meet the margin requirements to front what the DTCC was requiring from him. But then we got a later testimony from the DTCC, which said that they waived the capital requirements before the open of the market on the 28th. That was a really interesting thing. So we have two conflicting pieces of information, uh, one from, from Vlad and one from the DTCC. The payment for order flow is actually really interesting, uh, how Citadel pays for all the order flow from Robinhood so they can front run all of the retail orders. But I think... One of the one of the things that I saw missing in terms of questions from congressional uh, and the congressional hearing is uh, failures to deliver. So I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Paula, but mm-hmm. GameStop has been consistently on a fail to deliver. So um, and it's an unprecedented amount. So what will happen is during a trade, you have a T plus two day settlement. So. When you actually do the trade, it takes two days for the cash and the stock to settle. At that point, the person who bought the stock should receive the stock and the person who sold the stock should receive the money. The failure to deliver is what happens when they literally cannot settle the trade. There is no stock to deliver. So someone either sold or bought a stock and they either didn't deliver or they didn't receive uh, that particular stock. GameStop had been on the failure to deliver list since early December, meaning people were selling GameStop and there was no actual shares to be able to settle the trade. And typically this can happen. It's not a uncommon thing for it to happen occasionally and in very small numbers because maybe a settlement got mixed up. It was hard to locate the shares and it took an extra day to settle. But GameStop has been in the millions where other even large companies that have billions of outstanding shares like Apple, you might see a thousand or 10,000 failures to deliver of that particular stock in a day. GameStop has been in the millions on some days. So after the 28th, when it tanked really hard and everyone was unable to purchase more, there was like $320 million of failures to deliver that occurred on that day. So there was tons of shares that just weren't able to be found. So GameStop is really quite an anomaly on that. And I think people should be asking why so many failures to deliver. This actually, the same kind of thing happened uh, to Overstock.com. And the Overstock CEO was adamant 
about trying to fix naked short selling because that behavior being on a constant failure to deliver was indicative of naked short selling to manipulate the price down. We're kind of seeing that same thing here on GameStop in an unprecedented unprecedented level. If there was any questions that I would ask if I were a congressional person, it would be that. Where's the shares and why are there so many failures to deliver? And uh, what does the DTCC have to do with that? Because the DTCC can actually authorize in market makers like market makers like Citadel are able to naked short sell because they are a market maker. In order to supply liquidity, they are allowed to sell shares that aren't there, but they shouldn't be doing it in such an amount that causes issues like this. Yeah, that was the weird part of this. I remember Mike and I were having a conversation and I was like, why can't a stock sell out technically? And this whole situation has illuminated that for me. Right, exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for taking this time to share your GameStop experience. This has been a really interesting conversation and a a very interesting story to follow. Thanks for having us. This has been awesome. Yeah, yeah. We're really just honored to uh, to be able to talk with you. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on the show, Paula. That was a true honor. I know it was a blast for my husband because he loves retelling his GameStop story to anyone who will listen. So thank you. It was just a, a pleasure. I had such a great conversation. It's always good to talk to Paula. I highly recommend you check out her links in the show notes on moneyselfmade.com or on our YouTube channel. It is in the description below. So thanks again so much for tuning in. If you liked this interview, you're going to love what we have coming for you next week. You're going to want to subscribe and stay tuned. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to shoot me a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. It really means everything. We live and thrive on reviews. They are the lifeblood of how we are successful. So thank you so much for leaving a review for us. Thank you for tuning in. I will see you next week.